I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. Hold on to your hat, because I'm going to tell you something that may possibly give you a little bit of whiplash. Ketchup here in the United States is sold in smaller quantities than salsa. Salsa wins, and I'm very pleased to learn about this, actually. Obviously, things weren't always this way, and therein lies a tale. It's the tale of the rise and success of Mexican food in the United States of America. Here to talk it over with us is Gustavo Arellano. He's a Los Angeles Times columnist and host of the Times podcast. Also happens to be author of Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America. Gustavo Arellano, welcome to Constant Wonder. Gracias for having me. Taco USA, your book, it's coming up pretty soon on a 10-year anniversary, not too far down the road. And so I just have to ask you, before we get going on the history of Mexican food in America, um, do you suppose that Mexican food has arrived at a zenith, or is it still climbing? Oh, it's a zenith. We will never reach, but it's such a delicious trip to try to get to that zenith. And the United States has been on this journey now Geez, 140 years, around the 1880s, I would say, is when it all started, and we're now in the 2020s. So, yeah, 140 years of us just wanting the next step in Mexican food, and we reach it, and then we're like, wait, look, there's 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 even better tacos out on the horizon. Let's go out and get them. And, wow, there's enchiladas along the way, too. But some of the stuff seems a little newfangled these days. I mean, I, I know what fusion food is all about, but some of that seems a little bit like – you know, artistically cheap. <laughs> well, you know, there's this idea that Mexican food is uh, quotidian. In other words, it's cheap. It's uh, just whatever people. But no, look, Mexican food was the original fusion food of the Americas. Literally, you had the combination of indigenous foods and uh, foodways along with the Spaniards coming in with their stuff. When you're a colonial empire, you, st you start bringing in traditions from all over the world. And so it all turns into now what we call Mexican food. You bring it up to the United States. Like, yeah, the United States is a melting pot, but uh, Mexico had a good, what, 100 150, 200 years on Mexico, uh, on the U.S.'s idea of a melting pot. So ours is just going to be a little bit more baked and with a little bit more uh, uh, melted cheese on it. So what I hear you saying, actually, is that there's a, a, a flawed proposition of getting down to uh, origin stories of what's authentic and what's not because it's a big mishmash anyway. And there's there's no getting down to those pristine beginnings. There, it's, there are very few true 1,000% verified origin stories. Um, most of the rest of it is in myth. It's a legend, like 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 most foods. I mean, we know that, for instance, in the World's Fair in St. Louis, uh, there was a Syrian immigrant who introduced the cone, the ice cream cone as we know it now. And I forget his name now. So that's, you know, did he invent it? No. Did he introduce it? That's where it first got popular. But when it comes to the ideas of authenticity and tradition, no, that's just false. It's always been false. Uh, either it's all authentic or none of it's authentic by definition. But the idea of authenticity. The idea that is true in the sense that it motivates people to try to find that next great Mexican food item where they're, again, the, the, the course of Mexican food in the United States is Americans like it for a decade, then assimilate it, then think what's more quote unquote authentic out there. And then they go out and seek it. And then it, the cycle starts all over again. So you're happy with this arrangement. You like the way it works. Oh, of course. it's delicious. If it wasn't delicious, I wouldn't like it at all. I would not never have gone there. And I, I understand why the argument, why people want that argument and also why it's so raw. You know, this idea that, um, oh, you know, there's there's mongrelization of Mexican food there. You know, Mexican seeing, you know, white people, for lack of a better term, getting their food and doing all sorts of a supposed sins with it but my response the, the response I always have for those people is have you had that food yet if you've had the food yet and you didn't like it then you can argue about it but if you haven't had the food which is most likely especially in this instagram world then you have no credibility to stand on what just because you're mexican no try the food first you'd be surprised at some of the concoctions that people have made that seem are seemingly uh, uh what, what do you say inchoate but actually make sense well, I promise you we're going to get to Chili Queens and the history, and we're going to go to Texas and talk about all of that. But I just have to ask, if you have this attitude that it's you know fair play to just try things out, are you intrepid in your approach to something new? Surely you've seen something that on the menu that you said, no, that's, 
that is a juxtaposition of backgrounds that is just going to be a disaster. No, I, again, I will try it. I, I will. I will always try. Uh, sure, sometimes you get the arrogance. I'm, I'm trying to think of a good example. Uh, yeah, you, you have a dish called pozole. Pozole being made of hominy and pork, with usually with a red chili, uh, but sometimes white and sometimes green. So everyone's pozole is pretty popular right now. It's like it's trending, as the kids would say. So you've seen like I think it was the Barefoot Contessa that made some pozole with like corn kernels as opposed to corn hominy and using beans, and people just flipped out. And I and I saw I'm like, okay, well, this is definitely not the pozole that my mom made, and it doesn't look appealing to me but hey at least she's trying to do something and i'm not going to cast judgment on her until i try it but i'm not get, i'm not exactly running out the door to uh, get the recipe for this pozole so maybe her pozole is a, sort of a gateway that eventually might lead people to the hominy I, I'm all for the gateways. I've always argued that Taco Bell, as I do not like Taco Bell. I do you have uh, Del Tacos in Utah? Uh, we have have done. <laughs> okay, uh, Del Taco. I much prefer Del Taco. I much prefer Cafe Rio for that matter. I know Cafe Rio. Cafe Rio makes great handmade flour tortillas. It's not my favorite chain, but it's better than Taco Bell. I do not like Taco Bell, not because it's a chain, but because I think the food's not good. That said, Taco Bell was so important in, in introducing the idea of Mexican food outside of combo plates to Americans. And Americans, sure, Taco Bell is still a big industry, but it's it's day its best days are are its days as a Mexican food pioneer are over. Now they're doing like whatever's after Mexican food, frankly, with all of its stoner food. But at this point, the people who eat Taco Bell also want to get the more quote-unquote tacos. So I I commend Taco Bell for its role as a pioneer as that gateway. Yeah, we're going to have to come up with a name for what they do next, right? Is it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's Bell Stoner food. Max. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, who were the Chili Queens, and does the story really begin there, this side of the present-day border? So the Chili Queens, when it comes to uh, the course of Mexican food in the United States, and I talk about this in my book, it's cyclical based on decades. So the first celebrities, if you will, the first taco trucks were uh, in, in two cities in the United States, in San Francisco with tamales and in San Antonio with chili, which we now know is chili in a can, chili dogs, chili burgers. But back then it was called chile con carne. So in the 1880s, you start, once San Antonio connects with the railroad, once it becomes easier to travel to San Antonio, you're starting and see uh, writers from back east coming to San Antonio and, you know, uh, realizing that this is a very vibrant city, walking around at night and coming into the tradition of these women setting up uh, stalls where they would sell chili. They would be musical entertainment. You'd have lights and the and these the stalls would go from, uh, from dusk until dawn. And so the Eastern media deemed these women chili queens, you know, like, and you'd have this very floor. Now we read it, it's very patronizing, if not sexist, you know, spicy senoritas selling uh, dishes that, with the spice from the cauldrons of hell, very overwrought in the 1880s uh, lingo. But what it did do was popularize Mexican food and especially Mex culinary tourism to San Antonio. So by the time that by the time that the 1893 Chicago World's Fair rolls around, the country's ready to start eating chili. So chili in a can starts becoming a thing then. Of course, you always want the more, uh, the fresher take than just something from a can. So you start seeing chili par parlors spread across the South and across the East as well. The tamale men, on the other hand, they be they became popular across the West and in the South. They, they they made some inroads into the East, but really the South and the Mountain West is where the uh, tamales first started becoming popular. So you, just a moment ago, you used the phrase chili from hell. And, and I think you were reporting the way it was characterized in uh, yes. Eastern newspapers or something like that. Was that the kind of usage, the way people say bad when they mean good or that they mean sick when they mean it's great and cool and lovely? Uh, no, they, they were saying that it was so hot. It was so furious, the chili powders, that it was from hell. Like it was a f the fires of Gehenna, if you will. Just like, <laughs> ah, my mouth is on fire. They and they were not saying that the food was bad. They said they actually loved it. They loved the whole scene. But just that, I mean, you have to imagine the American palate in the 1880s Maybe the only spice they've ever encountered, if they were lucky, was Tabasco sauce from New Orleans, if they were lucky. And at that point, really had to travel to the East Coast. We're still at a very uh, Yankee, 
Midwestern diet where there is no spice. So for them, even the tiniest amount of pep, uh, chili pepper, not pepper the you know the the condiment, but the chili pepper that itself. Yeah, people are going to be um, very spiced up. Yeah, what I'm trying to concoct for myself now is a story, a storyline in which today when you have these people who are bragging about how hot they can take a chili pepper and they've got the yeah. scale for it all, I'm wondering if that attitude doesn't go way back into the late 1800s where even back then people were daring each other and it was it was really a, a badge of honor if you could, you know, swallow one of those peppers. It, it's, it's the flavor factor. Like, you know, you don't see people trying – like you- you don't see a humongous scene of people, for instance, trying to eat durian, the notorious fruit of spiky fruit <laughs> of Southeast Asia that has a rank smell and a rank taste, but fans swear by it. But people, I've ranked to American palate, that is. But chili pepper, this is something that started in the Americas, but once the world got onto it, most cultures love their chili pepper one way or another, whether it's paprika, whether it is the ghost pepper, whether it's a Tabasco pepper, jalapenos, or serrano. So, yeah, you know, the, the, the Instagram influencers who try to eat 15 habaneros at once, they got nothing on the, on the O. Henry's. O. Henry actually once wrote a short story about tamale queens. And these other people, Harper's Magazine, The Atlantic, they, they have nothing on those Easterners from the 1880s uh, parachuting into San Antonio. Now, there is a double-edged story here in terms of the way society treated Mexicans. And on the one hand, uh, let's we're going to love your food, and yet we're going to disadvantage you. <laughs> you you've, you've got to address this because the idea that chili queens uh, were uh, countenanced for a while and then kind of licensed out of existence— yeah, well, I mean, what this has been this has been the American way. We despise Mexicans. It is our primary rival, a uh, political rival for a hundred and let's see, the 1848 Mexican-American War. Uh, that is 170 years. We've gotten in two official wars with them, many unofficial wars. We share a border with them. Uh, Mexican immigration has changed the course of the American people long ago. For, you know, some people don't like it at all. So, of course, there's always going to be that tension. But damn or darn, the food is absolutely amazing. We got to eat the food. So that's been the American way. Love the Mexican food, hate the Mexican that make it. But what I argue is that is a step in the positive direction because historically when humankind has despised another group, uh, the first thing they do is demonize their cuisine. And so that we are eating Mexican food, even the most racist among us are eating Mexican food. That's a step in the right direction because we as Mexicans, first we conquer your stomach. First we conquer your palate, then we conquer your stomach. And then slowly but surely we conquer more of you. I am going to say something so elitist in just a little bit here, and it has to do maybe with my own personal tastes in food. But hang on for the ride. We're going to get to tamales in just a little bit after a short break here on our show. We are visiting with Gustavo Arellano and talking about Taco USA, how Mexican food conquered America. I'm Marcus Smith. Stick with us. Thanks for listening to Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. I said I was going to say something shameless, which is that uh, Lynn Wilson tamales are abhorrent to me. And huh. I just, I, I had no idea how, how much I disliked them uh, until, you know, I had a, what I would call a real tamale, you know. Uh, or tamal, or whatever the singular is. Is it, is it tamal? Is that correct? Tam- hey, they're both fine. Tama- <laughs> tamal in Spanish, but the Aztecs call them tamali. So the Americans are actually more authentic than Mexicans. Okay. Well, okay. Am I a tamale bigot? No. I, I Look. It's easy to romanticize the tamales that Mexicans make, but there's this idea that somehow everything that Mexicans make when it comes to our food is immaculate and perfect. It's not. I've had horrible tamales. I've had horrible tamales from relatives. I'm not going to name them, of course. <laughs> I've had good frozen tamales. Are the, you know, pound for pound, are the homemade tamales better than the frozen tamales? 1,000%. But you could say the same of any frozen food, you know, with the exception, obviously, of ice cream, like, are, you know, are, fr- are frozen burgers or frozen halibut or frozen anything better than the fresh stuff? No, not at all. So everyone's going to have their own taste, though. So for me, it's to it's to each their own. But then again, I am the person who wrote this. So I am the supreme <laughs> judge about all right. This. OK, well, what's the backstory, though, between the difference in the using masa for the tamale uh, versus the, you know, the the gritty corn? 
Well, the masa it comes from you get the corn. It, it comes from a process called nixtamalacion, and nixtamalacion is you get the corn kernels, then you treat them in a lye, in basically lye. So like lye and calcium, because if you eat too much corn, uh, raw corn, you're gonna get poisoned. Uh, you're gonna get pellagra disease. That is like it, it will kill you. So thousands of years ago, the ancestors of the Aztecs, or you know the the indigenous folks in Latin, in Mexico, they discovered this Im amazing process. And not only that, when you put in this lime tree or the lye treatment, it's lime actually, like um, you, it uh, leaches all the toxins out of the corn and it puts nutrients into it. So, and then on top of that, it makes the corn malleable and that's where you make the masa, masa basically being corn dough. And this is a process that's been going on for thousands of years, almost unchanged. Obviously now you have industrialization, but for expediency's sake, now you have something called masa harina, which basically means, um, well, how do you say harina? Uh, masa flour, masa flour. So all it is is dehydrated masa. And it's not as good as the fresh stuff, obviously, but it allows the, the trick with masa is that it uh, rots very fast. Like if you make masa, you basically have to use it that day. It's not really, you could freeze it, but it's like if you just keep it out, even refrigerate, it's not going to keep that long. Yeah, well, I'm I'm glad you kind of built me back up because I I was <laughs> I was being kind of hard on myself there. Um, we got to get to Taco Bell, and I know you've told this story uh, how many umpteen millions of times. Never uh, gets old. Uh, well, well, why wouldn't it get old? Because it is a very interesting story. That's why. Yeah. So <laughs> somebody named Bell. That's not a particularly Hispanic surname. You know, nope. and uh, so this is kind of. Okay, I'm going to be <laughs> – I've gone down this road already. It's cultural appropriation. I don't know what it is. Um, is it fair for somebody named Bell to come up with a, a taco shop? Why wouldn't it? Uh, you know, the fa I, as I talk about the story – in my, in my Taco USA book, Glenn Bell was a World War II veteran. Uh, grew, his family was rich, but his dad was itinerant. So he grew, ended up growing up in poverty. Comes back, decides he wants to become a millionaire. He wants to make money. but he, And he lives in San Bernardino, which is in the Inland Empire in Southern California. This interesting uh, birthplace for many, many fast food chains and fast food innovations. So he can't do hamburgers because at that point, the McDonald brothers of Yes McDonald's McDonald's is are already becoming rich, um, making hamburgers. So he decides then I'm going to do it off of tacos because San Bernardino has always been a, a heavily Latino community, mostly Mexican American. So he fought, he opens up a hamburger and hot dog stand across the street from a Mexican restaurant. A after every night he closes up, then he goes across the street to order some of the, the tacos. And then he tries to reverse engineer them. Eventually the owners realize what he's trying to do and say, Hey, look, instead of you trying to steal our recipe, we'll show you the recipe go off and do it. And uh, Glenn Bell admits to all this story in his biography, Taco Titan, the Glenn Bell story. He he made that uh, name, not me. I'm not making it up. And so, I, and I, hey, I guess cool for you. What I didn't appreciate is that he didn't give a name to that restaurant. So in my book, I discover it. It's the, the, And the restaurant's still around. It's Meat La Cafe, uh, and now 85 years old. Um, and if you go there, they still, they have not changed the recipe for those tacos that Glenn Bell tried to reverse engineer. Hard shell, fried fresh, a, ground, a mixture of ground beef or ground chicken with uh, mashed potatoes to, uh, you know, extend the meat, so to speak. And then you have that rainbow, a blizzard of yellow cheese, some red tomatoes, and then uh, lettuce. It's a delicious taco. So I talked to the daughter-in-law of the of the founders of Meat La Cafe, Irene Montaño. She's in her 80s. She's still around. Uh, not just She's not retired. She only goes to work once a week now. But I asked her for my book, is it true about the story of Glenn Bell? And she remembered it very well. Then I asked her, like, how does it feel that this white man uh, stole your family's patrimony and has made a, made a multi-billion dollar company out of it? And I'll, ne I'll never forget what he told me. She told me, he, she said, good for him. His restaurant's been around for 50 years. Ours has been around for, at that point, 75 years, and our tacos are better. <laughs> you got to respect that, don't you? Hey, I, do you have a re Mexican restaurant that's been around for 85 years? Mm, I don't. So yeah. <laughs> I think if, the, if that's going to be her stance, I not only better respect that, but I also got to take it into consideration as something that really changes your worldview of things. That, and it did for me. Well, I was going to march forward and talk about Frito-Lay and uh, Disneyland and Doritos, but I have a, I've got a different angle here I want to spring on you, which is, is there something about 
a homogenization of expectations. And I'll give you an example, the idea that a tortilla chip's got to be a triangle. Hmm. No, I don't know if people think that. I mean, they're used to that, but I've seen round chips. I've seen weirdo chips too. I think what matters with the, t- the tortilla chip is that um, that it crunches well. Yeah. But what about the idea that as, um, you know, we live in a society where people spread information on Instagram and social media and they're talking. I mean, back uh, in the 1880s, word didn't spread so quickly that would set expectations for what uh, what you're going to get. And I I kind of think maybe I know it's I know I'm generalizing here. I'm, I'm guilty of this all the time. But there's an there's an idea that it's just got to be this, that or the other thing with iceberg lettuce, you know? Well, you know, people have people have always had expectations. I mean, yes, news didn't travel that fast back in the 1880s, but it did travel fast. And so when people were coming to San Antonio, they were expecting the Chili Queens to act in a certain way and look in a certain way. And they expected their tamales to be in a certain way as well. Uh, but the, the human mind is predisposed to stereotype. It's predisposed to make things easy because life itself is a miracle, but life is way too fast. So we need to compartmentalize things to be able to make sense of it all. Yeah. Does Doritos, does that really mean little golden thingies? Oh, yeah. Dorado is golden and, Dori- and uh, Ito is a diminutive. So Doritos is little golden things. Yeah. And Disneyland, what's the connection there? It's in my book, but um, for the listeners who better buy my book, um, it, Doritos were invented by the Morales family who were pioneers in, uh, in tamales in Southern California. When Disneyland opened in, in the late 50s, they held a commissary contract to all of the restaurants there at Disneyland. Uh, about a year into Disneyland's uh, existence, the Frito-Lay Company uh, opened up a restaurant called Casa de Frito, the House of Frito, where they served everything Frito, a taco salad and a big, huge uh, 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 taco shell made with Fritos, of course. You had tacos, you had all of that. And, you know, they made their tortillas fresh and the, you know, the, the teenage white workers there, they would, when they could not fry a tortilla well, they would just throw it away. Then one day the Morales families look, looks at this and says, hey, look, you don't have to throw them away. A fried tortillas are good. You can still break it up and like make it flavorful. So they started putting uh, melted cheese on them, almost like nachos, but more, more like a cheese dusting. One day, uh, Arch West, uh, an executive for Frito-Lay, he comes in and he gets mad. He says, look, like you're only supposed to be selling or offering uh food approved by Frito-Lay and this is not approved but the Morales family told them look they are very popular Arch West became a convert uh the Morales family had a factory a tamale factory in Disneyland not in Disneyland but not too far away from Disneyland and city of Anaheim for a full year they manufactured nothing but Doritos it became such a success that Frito-Lay then took I mean, it was the, the Doritos recipe was never Morales because they were under contract with Frito Lay, but uh, the the Frito Lay company took the manufacturing away from Anaheim and spread it all across the United States, and here we are today, where there's uh, gosh knows how many uh, uh, flavors of Doritos nowadays. My favorite, by the way, is uh, Cool Cool Ranch Doritos, not Flaming Hot. <laughs> Well, I've already tipped my hand that I'm very capable of oversimplifying things or generalizing. And so uh, I'm thinking that the best Mexican food is never going to come from the corporate top where they pay food scientists to do their studies and then come up with new ideas. I think this is a groundswell kind of a thing that it, it, it's, it's where the taco trucks are, where the little shops are, that the best new ideas emerge. Uh, you, you know what? That's easy to say, but again, it's romanticizing uh, <laughs> the proletariat, which is very leftist, by the way. Um, I genius is genius is genius, and I've seen this because before I wrote Taco USA, and I don't do it as much anymore. But I was a food critic, so I would do the high end and the low end. So I've seen people spend millions of dollars trying to open up a restaurant and failing miserably. On the other hand, I've seen people starting with uh, selling from uh, tamales out of a, a you know cooler that they have in the the trunk of their car and make millions, but also vice versa. I see millionaires making great concepts. I see uh, uh, working class people trying and then failing to do so. What is undisputable is that when there is a stroke, uh, a streak of genius, if you will, other people start copying it. And and that's why I have a problem when 
when it comes to the idea of appropriation, uh, that only white people could do appropriation when it comes to Mexican food, because Mexicans, re- Me- Mexican restaurateurs would rip off their own mother. If that means they could get a little bit more money. <laughs> I have se- I have seen this with my own eyes. I've covered this with my own pen. It is a ruthlessly capitalistic industry where there is no, the people who say they have fealty uh, to tradition or, you know, to the community at large, they are lying to you. I'd never heard of hot dog gyros. How do you say? <laughs> hot dogueros. Hot dogueros. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. What, what on earth? <laughs> hot dog man, of course. Uh, Sonoran style hot dog. So you get a bigger bun. You you wrap the frankfurter in uh, bacon. Then you put some beans, some crema fresca, some salsa, uh, also some chile, some you know hot chili peppers in it. It is an app. It, they started in Sonora, uh, which is the state of northern Mexico. Skipped over to Arizona. Then uh, triangulated down to Tijuana has been spreading across the United States ever since. When you're just dreaming of something new, I mean, have have you concocted something new? Have you have you been in the kitchen and said, <laughs> "I'm going to come up with a new, you know, new Mexican food"? I wish I could only cook quesadillas, uh, which I'm the best quesadilla cooker on the planet. But a great quesadilla is very simple. You just need cheese, not too much of it. And you toast the tortillas. Uh, you know, I like flour tortillas because they get bigger, but the better flavor is with corn. So depending on whatever's on my fridge, you make your quesadillas and you're in bliss. Uh, uh, my wife runs a restaurant. She has done good concoctions. What she does great is micheladas. Micheladas are uh, beer, like beer-based cocktails. So it's like uh, like beer with flavors in it. She also makes non-alcoholic versions. And she makes uh, michelada from guava for, to prickly pear syrup to... Um, uh, uh, like the uh, micheladas that taste like chili mangoes, like uh, watermelon Jolly Ranchers, really, really flavorful. She's she's a talent in the family, not me. Last of all, at the very beginning of our conversation, we were talking about the Chili Queens, and you talked about it. There was music, and there was dancing, and then there was the food there, and this would go late into the night. And so uh, uh, I'm thinking that the experience of Mexican food if you go through a drive through window, I'll call me judgmental again if you want to because, you know, you go to the window and they hand it to you and you leave. There's no music. There's no <laughs> society. And I'm wondering um, to what extent that is the real thing. Uh, well, go ask the people who wait in line at In-N-Out and they'll tell you what the real thing is. What are they going to say? I, I haven't been there lately. <laughs> In and out. Oh, come on, folks. In Utah, there is the lines are there as not as long and ridiculous as they are. People are going to make what they want of the real thing. A lot of it's based off of nostalgia. If you want to hear music, look, there are those places. You need to go find those places. Ask a Mexican. Uh, that's a column that I used to do, by the way. Um, ask a Mexican, and they'll guide you to where the music are if you want the quote unquote more authentic thing. But at the end, people just want to eat, and nothing's going to keep them from eating their idea of what Mexican food is. And did I just ask? Mexican in this last half hour? You sure as heck did. (laughs) Gustavo Arellano, a pleasure to visit with you. Thank you so much. Gracias. Arellano, a Los Angeles Times columnist, host of the podcast The Times, and author of Taco USA. Most taco joints, I'm talking about both the authentic street taco places and straight-up fast food, well, they give you an option for salsa that's so hot that your tongue hurts and your cheeks Your uvula, your esophagus, everything burns. Why do people enjoy that? Why do we like spicy food? And why dogs don't like spicy food? We're going to have some answers to those questions when we come right back to Constant Wonder. Stay with us. You're listening to Constant Wonder. I'm Tenery Taylor, sitting in for Marcus Smith. Many pregnant moms have this internal debate. If I love spicy food and I order hot salsa or that Indian vindaloo curry, will it hurt my baby? Or at the very least, maybe irritate the baby? Or on the other hand, will the baby be born with a love for onions and chili peppers? Chili peppers are a staple in many cuisines, but to some people, they just can't tolerate them at all. And why is that? We're going to ask Professor Paul Bossland. He's the co-founder and director of the New Mexico State University Chili Pepper Institute, and he's a professor of horticulture there. He's also known as the Chili Man. Welcome to Constant Wonder, Professor Bossland. Oh, my pleasure. So why is it that some people love spicy foods and others just can't take it, makes them sick? 
Oh, it's because we're all genetically different. Um, and really what it is, is it's the number of heat receptors we have in our mouth and in our body. And, uh, you know, like you probably know someone that really likes a hot cup of, of um, soup or a hot bowl of soup. And others say, well, no, it has to be cooler. And that's because heat receptors are triggering signals in your brain. And chilies have what we call capsaicinoids. Those are the alkaloid that attaches to those heat receptors and signal your brain. And if you have a lot of those, you're very sensitive. And if you don't have too many, you can eat really hot things. And so we're all just kind of genetically predisposed. Interesting thing is once you begin to eat chili peppers, though you do build up a tolerance. And so you can sometimes build up a, a um, oh, to go to, from a mild to a medium or a medium to a hot kind of salsa. But again, your body's going to stop you at some point and say, that's hot enough. So the heat receptor, you're talking heat temperature, it's the same receptor as heat spice. It is. The body it thinks exactly it's the is. same? It's exactly is. Um, they they discovered that um, that the what the capsaicinoids do is they attach to those receptors, those heat receptors, and send the brain a signal that something is hot, even though it's not temperature hot. And so your brain is telling you, oh, it's very very hot, but really it isn't. Well, let's go back to what, when I was pregnant. If I had eaten a lot of hot, spicy food, do we know yet that whether that could cause my child to develop a lot of those and be born with a lot of those heat receptors? From the studies that have been done, no. And, you know, the question I'm asked more often is if I eat hot chili peppers, does it make my milk hot? And no, it doesn't. So uh, most of the studies show that really there isn't a, um, a problem, uh, you know, transferring that heat to the, to the baby. Well, I have to ask you, how did you become known as the chili man? I mean, obviously, you're someone who loves eating chilies. Well, not not so much that as uh, in New Mexico, chili peppers are really part of our culture and, uh, and our identity. And when I was hired at New Mexico State University uh, to be a vegetable breeder, I worked with uh, some broccoli and cabbage and asparagus. And then I realized early in my career I could spend all my time on chili peppers, never answer all the questions, but still have a, well, I was hoping, a wonderful career. So I always joke that I put all my chili peppers in one basket and watch that basket carefully. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so how hot of a chili pepper can you tolerate eating? Uh, not too hot, to be honest with you. I'm more of what we would call the, the medium hots. Uh, that's a, the my level. And, and it's interesting, people that do have a lot of heat receptors, you can actually tell the difference between the different kinds of chili heats. There are actually 22 um, alkaloids that cause that heat sensation. And they react differently. So I came up with what's called a heat profile of a chili. So the next time you try chilies, see if the heat comes on rapidly or it's a delayed heat. Does the heat linger or does it, does it dissipate quickly? Where do you sense the heat? Tip of your tongue, your lips, mid-palate, back of the throat. And then an interesting one is see if the heat is sharp. I call it, which is like prickly heat, like pins sticking you, or is it a flat heat, a broad heat, like someone paintbrushed it? And, and that'll tell you the kind of chili pepper you're eating. Uh, habaneros will always be in the back of the throat. They kind of linger. The heat doesn't come on instantly. Uh, Asian chilies, like in a Chinese restaurant, will always have a sharp heat, kind of feels like pins sticking you. And then jalapenos will be on the tip of your tongue and your lips. So, you know, sometime when you're eating a salsa, you can say, you know, some people are wine connoisseurs. I'm a chili connoisseur, and I'm going to tell you what you have in here. Oh, wow. So let's talk about the science of what is happening when I'm eating a chili pepper. You gave us a really good overview of, of the mouth, and, then, and I know that maybe I have more heat receptors, and so I'm going to experience. Well, let me ask you this. If I have more heat receptors, am I going to experience pleasure or maybe more pain? Um, well, it's, you know, how we define pain, but yes, you will sense that the chilies are hotter than someone with less heat receptors. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing is that when the heat goes away, when you eat a chili pepper, it's not because the compound's gone, it's that your body produced endorphins, and endorphins give you that um, good feeling, overall uh, happiness feeling. And so, you know, chili peppers are, are actually making you feel good. Okay, so that's where I want to go. Why do I start to sweat when I'm eating a chili pepper? And, and then tell me what else is happening as the, as the chili pepper goes down into the stomach. 
Sure. I mean, the, the, again, it's kind of a heat thing. Your body says, I need to cool off. So it begins to sweat. And then as it goes down, I mean, you'll feel it kind of in your throat. But then you most times you don't notice it in the tummy so well. Uh, it doesn't really affect there, but it does affect the next day, we say. So always be careful because, uh, you know, what you do today may, may uh, affect you tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, that's... I. When I was pregnant, I had enough trouble with heartburn, so I didn't want to add to it. Um, So the chili pepper is going to have more effect down there, maybe in the esophagus than the stomach? Yeah, exactly. And and actually, some people have hiccups. They eat them and they start getting the hiccups. And that's another kind of human reaction to eating hot chili peppers. And also, what you have to realize, um, some people say, oh, I can't really eat green chilies or jalapenos. Well, that's an immature fruit. It's like eating a, a, a green apple, an apple that's not ripe. You'll, sometimes your body reacts to that. The red fruit, the mature fruit, is uh, really got different chemicals. And a lot of people can eat a red sauce where they couldn't eat a green sauce. And again, that's because people uh, vary in their genetic makeup. I like to, when I'm eating um, chili or a uh, 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 curry that's spicy. I always want some paneer cheese, like a creamy cheese or a sour cream. Is is there some science behind that? There really is. Um, the, we did a study to find out what cuts the heat the best, and it turned out to be milk. And what it, what it is is milk has a protein in it that binds to those receptors. So in a sense, it moves off that heat um, um, signal for, with the capsaicinoids, the, the milk protein goes on to there and it blocks that heat and so that's the fastest way to cure the heat and so something like a sour cream or uh, a milk and it can be non-fat milk because it's not the fat in the milk it's that protein that that binds in there and gives you the relief I wonder how um, how have different is it is it predictable that if a country is say has a hot climate is going to be likely to use chili peppers because they want to encourage that kind of sweating those endorphins that cooling that comes after the burning um, or what have you found in your worldwide studies of, of chili origins? Sure, uh, that was always kind of a myth or uh, you know folklore that uh, people in hot countries eat chili peppers because it makes them sweat and feel cooler. But if you've ever traveled in the tropics, you know sweating really doesn't help because the humidity is so high. Turns out that uh, researchers believe that actually the capsaicinoids that helps clean out intestinal uh, parasites. And so early on, humans began to eat that as kind of a medicinal plant, and it would help their um, digestive system clear out uh, bad bugs, you might say. Are there any health risks to eating spicy foods? There are. I mean, you can blister from from the heat, um, eating something too hot. We always recommend people, you know, if you're working with hot chili peppers, put gloves on, rubber gloves to protect your hands. We actually have a name called Hunan Hand, which is when your hands turn red, it may even blister from having being exposed (laughs) to the the chili heat. There are some, some peppers so spicy they could kill you, right? Well, not well. That you know, you have to be careful here. Is that another no myth chili that's that hot to kill you, but there are some that would make you wish you were dead. I would say. <laughs> <laughs> tell us, tell us about a couple of those. Well, yeah, recently um, um, we we found a chili out of India called it was called the Butjalokia in the Assam language, which translates to the ghost pepper. And that hit 1 million Scoville heat units. And so we measure chili pepper heat in Scoville heat units. And to put that in perspective, a jalapeno is about 10,000 Scoville heat units. And so this was the very first chili pepper ever to hit 1 million wow. Scoville heat units. And then my colleagues in, in Trinidad said, oh, we have even a hotter chili. And I said, well, send it up and we'll test it. And we tested it, and one called the Trinidad Scorpion hit 2 million Scoville heat units. And so at the Chili Pepper Institute, we see that as the world's hottest chili pepper. I'm, I'm assuming these are found in the wild. I, I can't imagine that people would cultivate these. Oh, it's actually just the opposite. They're cultivated uh, because they're usually grown in, in poor regions, and so you don't need as much to, to, to season a dish. Oh, okay. And even in Guatemala, they call it the seven soup pepper uh, because you, you can actually 
uh, season seven soups with it. And so it was really an advantage for poor people to have something that hot. So you don't need as as much fruit. Sounds like a, a lower environmental impact as well. I mean, you don't have to have quite as big of a crop if you can, if they're so potent, right? Sure. One in a backyard, um, you know, kitchen garden usually suffices. Now, at your Chili Pepper Institute, you you actually helped create a new pepper called the Numex Twilight. Can you tell us about that? Sure. That that was an ornamental chili, and I'm asked a lot of times, are ornamental chilies edible? And there's no such thing as a poisonous uh, chili pepper. So even the ornamentals can be used to, to season a dish if you want something to heat up, a say, a soup or a bowl of uh, chili with an I. We always like to point out that C-H-I-L-E is how we do the chili here, but C-H-I-L-I is the state dish of Texas. <laughs> but um, Twilight was an ornamental. Um, people don't realize until about the 1950s at Christmas, you would give a little chili pepper, a dwarf chili pepper plant, because it had the colors of Christmas, green and red. But then the plant breeders did such a good job on a cut flower called poinsettia that today everybody thinks of poinsettia as the Christmas plant. And so we've been working with ornamentals for the greenhouse industry. And so with our tongue firmly planted in our cheek, we said, we'll take all the other holidays and let poinsettia have Christmas. And so we now have like Numex uh, Halloween, which goes from orange to black to orange, Valentine's white to red, St. Patrick's Day, green and orange. So we we kind of taken uh, holiday names to, to name all these ornamentals. And Twilight goes from a beautiful purple to a yellow, to an orange, to a red, all on the same plant. So it's a a very vivid, beautiful uh, uh, visual plant. And, and how spicy is it? Oh, it's 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 hot. I mean, it, it would be somewhere around, a, say, a cayenne or a jalapeno heat level. So not really, really hot, but you know, hot enough that you'd say, yeah, it's got some kick. Well, I wouldn't turn one down if somebody wanted to give me one for Easter or Valentine's Day, because I think I'd get a lot more use out of it than a, a poinsettia at Christmas. Um, and it sounds like it would be pretty on my on my plate as well, as having a little kick. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, some people will put it in oil or vinegar, uh, the colored fruits, to kind of make a hot oil or a hot vinegar. And it's, and it's quite pretty that way. What do you see as the future of chili pepper um, you know, evolution and, and maybe crossbreeding. I, we're all so interconnected now. Do you see that chilies will di- continue to be kind of diffused around the world and, and crossbred to, to get new varieties like the one that you made? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting. When I first started more than three decades ago working with chili peppers here, it, uh, I was always asked, are chili peppers a fad or a trend? Nobody ever asks that question anymore. And what we're working on are to make uh, chilies more nutritious. They're very high in vitamin A, very high in vitamin C. But now we're working on a, a, a um, molecule, compound, chemical called lutein, which is really good for your eyes. And so we're getting ready to release a serrano that has large amounts of lutein. So if you were to make a salsa with that, you would get lots of lutein to help your eye health. We've been speaking with Paul Bosland. He's the director of the Chili Pepper Institute at New Mexico State University, where he's also a professor of horticulture. He is popularly known as the Chili Man. Thank you for joining us on Constant Wonder. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. Tenery Taylor of our Constant Wonder production team heard there. Having started out the hour talking about tacos, we're going to finish things off now with a lesser-known Mexican import readily available in larger American cities. In some places, I suppose, you might have to cross a language barrier to get some of this. It's a succulent meat, the concoction called barbacoa. And to learn more, Eric Schultzka spoke with Nick Zukin, who is a restaurateur in Portland, Oregon. So when we say barbecue... Um, we're generally talking about low and slow cooking, um, and it you know it has its regional differences. Um, the Texas style is probably closer to the Mexican style. Um, the the uh, Carolina style is probably closer to the Caribbean style, and it's you know we get the word barbecue from the Caribbean, and we get the word barbacoa from the Caribbean as well. So you know the barbecue is kind of the English version of what the uh, Caribbean uh, natives used. And then barbacoa is, is the Spanish word for what the Caribbean 
so used. so the uh, if the word the word actually originally, as I understand it, um, people used to sleep on barbecues. Can you help us uh, understand that? Yeah. So in the earliest uh, in the earliest use of the word, you know, it was a Hispanic uh, Hispanic uh, version, you know, transliteration basically of of something that sounded pretty close to barbecue, and and then but you know for the Spanish it's much easier to say barbacoa, so they started using the word barbacoa, and it had kind of a general meaning for like a scaffold made of, of wood or sticks. And so you would sleep up in kind of the trees or up above um, the ground on these raised scaffolds that had kind of a tent on them. And that was uh, what a barbacoa was, but it was also used to describe the kind of raised grills um, that the uh, natives were using to, uh, cook their uh, meats and fish and and vegetables and corn. I mean, in the early descriptions from the Spanish explorers, it's actually corn that's cooked the most, um, but also meat uh, in the Caribbean islands. So, but it was up on these scaffolds where it was over charcoals, and they would slowly roast whatever it was. So I'm revealing my ignorance. Even, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, even in the early descriptions, they even describe. Uh, what sounds to me, and I haven't checked it with the anthropologist, but uh, what sounds to me like people who were cremated and they talk about them being on barbacoa. So it was a general word, I think, for a scaffolding made of uh, sticks. I think I just lost my appetite. <laughs> um, so so were you, you, going back to the definition, now it seems like this is an ignorant uh, Western or American here. I, obviously, any North Carolinians can plug their ears right now. But uh, I, the distinction between grilling and barbecuing seems to be important, that barbecuing doesn't, is not just slapping something on a grill. No, for Americans in the South, you would not call grilling barbecuing. You barbecue. Barbecue is a, a, a low and slow process. In the Carolinas, it's um, low and slow over coals, uh, very similar to what the Caribbeans did. In other parts, it can be low and slow in some sort of uh, pit or or uh, smoker, basically. Now, I, under, I understand you know, that when you first launched on this project that you actually spent some time in Mexico uh, absorbing this, soaking in it, so to speak. Could you uh, tell us how you learned how to do this? Well, I was, you know, enjoying barbacoa in Mexico and in the United States and wanted to learn more about it and about its history. And it's very difficult to find something on that. You get it mentioned in other books on meats or on history of cooking, but there is there is no book that specifically goes through the history of barbacoa in Mexico. And so that's why I started um, working on this project and started doing my own research because I wanted to basically learn for myself and no one else had really done the work. So when you um, say started this Spanish. project, you're not talking the restaurant, you're talking a, a research project on barbacoa itself? Correct. So I'm currently uh, and have been for the several years um, researching barbacoa. So I've traveled to, I don't know, a dozen states probably in Mexico just to uh, learn about um, research, cook with people making um, barbacoa. Uh, I've been doing a decent amount of historical research on it and anthropological research, studying other people's work. Um, okay. Yeah. So, so give me really give me a picture. If you were going to take like the like the the median, the average, or or whatever in Mexico in terms of like how it's normally done, um, how do they how do they cook this barbacoa? So most people think of barbacoa in Mexico as what's cooked in Central Mexico, uh, the states of Hidalgo, Carretero. Uh, the state of, Me of Mexico itself, um, Morelos, Puebla. It is usually lamb, uh, sometimes goat, uh, sometimes beef, but usually lamb that's cooked whole in the ground in a pit oven. Now you say and lamb, so, you mean lamb, not mutton. It can be mutton, but uh, it's it's usually um, okay. um, it's usually lamb or mutton. Yeah, it could okay. be either. Okay. Okay. So keep going. So, so really, it's an old style of cooking that you find throughout the world. But, you know, Mexico and the Polynesian uh, islands are probably the only places that actively do this style of cooking, where you, you dig a pit, 
Um, you have uh, rocks or stones in there. You heat those up until they're very hot, usually a couple of hours of, of getting those stones hot. And then you put some sort of scaffolding. So maybe that's where the um, phrase barbacoa comes from for this style of cooking uh, there. Then you put the meat on it. Um, in Mexico, you usually have some sort of pot underneath to catch the juices and create a soup out of it. Mm. And then um, and then you cover that, and then you cover it with with other things. Usually in Mexico, it's uh, banana leaves or uh, agave leaves. And then you cover it with dirt and make it airtight. And then it cooks um, airtight steam roasting for, you know, usually overnight. And so then it's just fall apart tender. This sounds and like a luau. soup down below. It sounds... Exactly. It's very, very similar to what the Polynesians do in what's called their emu or umu for cooking pig. But these, these emerge separately without any known connection culturally. Correct. And, and they basically um, emerged everywhere in the world separately. I mean, it's hard to find a place where there isn't earth oven cookery. Uh, Europe is probably one of the least uh, um, one of the places that used it least, but uh, you find it throughout the entire world. Um, and I mean, in the Americas, it goes back at least 10,000 years. They were cooking uh, bison in North America. In Mexico, um, you know, pre-conquest, they didn't cook many animals. I mean, there were some animals cooked, you know, but they didn't have livestock. So there wasn't that much deer cooked. Um, they had uh, possum, they had uh, um, turkey, and, and some other things that they would mostly forage. They actually, the closest thing to livestock they had was a type of dog. But um, they mostly cooked uh, agave root um, or oh. uh, manioc root. And, you know, which makes a lot of sense because these very fibrous roots right. take a lot of cooking to convert them to something edible. Right. And it's, so they would cook those yeah. for days, actually, underground in these wow. gigantic pits. So and this then, is this is very once, similar to what you're doing with the meat because you're taking like mutton. That's tough meat. Right. So you have, and, and you yeah, have to do that with the roots as well. Hey, uh, this is fascinating stuff. You've answered a few of my questions. Man, we could go on with this. Uh, there's a lot of history, a lot of culture, and a lot of food. You know, when it comes to investigating the stuff we eat, there's just a, well, I'm going to say a bottomless pit because you were talking about cooking in the <laughs> earth there. We could, we could, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about it here on Constant Wonder. Thanks, uh, Eric, for making the connection with Nick. Pleasure to have you. And thanks, Nick, for being with us. Thank you. Nick Zukin is a restaurateur in Portland, Oregon. He was speaking with Eric Schultzka. Our show is a production of BYU Radio.